Thank you, Quartet. That was wonderful. Uh, good morning, church. Uh, for today, and you can see it in your bulletin because I remembered to get the information to Norma on time so that she could get it in for all of you. Uh, we are going to be going over the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as found in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Uh, due to how I am scheduled to preach in this church, uh, it is often it often takes me a while to pick a, a topic I want to preach on, uh, because sometimes I feel like my preaching is more like an interruption in the greater stream of things. Uh, I thought about doing a psalm, but I didn't want to step on Pastor Larry's toes because we're in the middle of the psalms. I thought about doing Jude because in youth group we ended up not getting to that message and I had it all prepared. Uh, I thought about doing something from the Old Testament, uh, but I also teach at Blue Mountain Christian School, and the curriculum I teach focuses on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So I've gotten very familiar with a number of parables in there, and eventually I settled on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is what we're going to be going over today. Now, I'm going to pick on some of those students who are in my Bible class, uh, and I'll call out to Jarrett, because he's in the back. Jarrett, do you remember what a parable is? There you go. Amen. A parable is a story with a point. And I want to make this clear at the start. What we are reading is a parable. It is a story. You can, you can think of it akin to something like the tortoise. Are there any kids in here that know the story of the tortoise and the hare? Or do they call it the rabbit and the turtle now? They, they, call, it the, they call it the tortoise and the hare when I knew it. Okay, so I see a few. Uh, Tucker, what's, what's the message in the tortoise and the hare. Do you know? Yeah, and the, the turtle catches up because why? So the rabbit does what? Yeah, he takes naps and he keeps taking naps and the turtle just, or the tortoise just keeps trudging along and the tortoise wins the race because he kept at it whereas the rabbit took breaks. Now, as with the tortoise and the hare, the details of that story doesn't, they don't really matter when it comes to the point. If it's the story of the, the rabbit and the snail instead of the turtle, it doesn't change the point. And it's the same here with parables. The details of the story don't matter as much as the point. In fact, Luke 15, us and a great example of this. Luke 15 comes before Luke 16. Great theological point for you, by, by the way. Uh, and it's part of the address that Luke 16 is a part of. But in Luke 15, we have three parables. One is of a man who loses a sheep. One is of a woman who loses a coin. And one is of a man who loses his younger son. And that's the parable of the prodigal son. All three of those parables have the same message. That in heaven, there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents, over one someone who was lost and is now found. The man with the sheep loses his sheep, but then he finds it, and he rejoices. The woman loses her coin, she searches her house, and she finds it, and she rejoices with her friends. The man loses his younger son, and eventually the younger son comes back and he rejoices. The point is the same in all three parables, even though the details are completely different. 
and I'm putting such an emphasis on this, is because in the rich man and Lazarus, this is a parable that we can be very prone to try and pull doctrine out of the details and completely miss the point of the parable because it has a very unique story to it. The other thing I'm going to do during this parable is try to give you details to help you understand how Jesus' audience would understand it. Because we're very familiar with this parable. In fact, I'm pretty sure if I asked most of the kids in middle school, maybe even in the older elementary ages, they could tell me what this parable is. We're very familiar with this parable. Something we have to constantly remind ourselves as we read the Word of God is that the people who are hearing it are hearing it for the first time. How would they understand it? This parable is given during Jesus' Perean ministry. It is while Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem. This is the last year of Jesus' ministry, which is commonly referred to as the year of opposition. And we know it's sometime after October, and it's sometime before April. So Jesus has less than six months before he's going to be crucified. Uh, this is near the end of Jesus' ministry as he gives this parable. The audience of Luke 15.1 to Luke 17.10, which is where our parable fits, is comprised of three people, or three groups, I should say. One is tax collectors and sinners, one is his disciples, and one is the Pharisees and the scribes. Those are the three primary groups that hear these parables. As I said before, Luke 15 has to do with salvation and the rejoicing that occurs when a sinner comes to repentance, when someone lost is found. And these parables were given in response to the Pharisees' grumblings that Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Luke 16, then, continues from Luke 15, but it no longer focuses on salvation as much as it does with, what do I do with this life now? What changes? And Luke, in his gospel, there are a number of themes throughout Luke. One is on reversals, which we're going to see in this parable, and two is on the dangers of wealth. And in Luke 16, there are two parables given. Uh, the first is in verses 1 to 13, and the point of this parable, we won't read it, is planning for the future. In this case, for the saved person, planning for eternal life and living a life that is set up so that eternal life is as good as it can be. And it ends with a scorching teaching on wealth. This is kind of the crowning teaching on wealth in the Gospel of Luke, verse 13. Of chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Not you should not, not you might not. You cannot serve God and wealth. And this is a verse, in America especially, that should be preached all the time, in my opinion. Uh, because the idol of America, and, well, the idol of his audience, is wealth. You cannot serve both. And in verse 14 of chapter 16, the Pharisees scoff at this, and we're told it's because they're lovers of money. And so Jesus rebukes them for their self-righteousness. They try to justify themselves in the sight of men. They try to clamor for what men hold in high esteem, and to God it is an abomination. God sees their hearts, he sees their failings to live to his righteous standards, and Jesus tells us that even though something new and better is here, 
to fulfill the law, namely himself, the moral standards of God don't change. And the moral standards of God are given in the law, and we see them also in Jesus' teaching and in the New Testament. Those moral teachings don't change. And so when he teaches on greed or on lust, he gives the example in verse 18, he is speaking of the fact that God's righteous standards don't change. Even though something greater is here, what is given to us in the law and prophets or Moses and the prophets regarding God's moral standards has not changed. And so Jesus, a master teacher, in our parable today, warns both against wealth and the pursuit of wealth and making wealth your God and stresses the importance of Scripture. And what I want us to get from this is one of the verses we read on the screen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's read what Jesus has to say with the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to start in verse 19 and read to verse 21. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So we're introduced to these two main characters of the parable. There's the rich man and there's Lazarus. The rich man is beyond wealthy. Uh, he is extraordinarily rich. We're told that he habitually dressed in purple and in fine linen. Fine linen would be your undergarment. It was expensive. Purple would be your outer garment. Who here is dressed in purple today? Or some shade thereof. It can be anything really from like red to a very, very dark purple. Okay, so this is, this is your hand raised. This is not. So if you're wearing purple, I want to see a hand in. There we go. Okay. So to give you an idea of how much purple was worth, we have records of this from 300 AD. If you wanted to buy a pound of purple dye so that you could stain your own clothes or whatever article of clothing, however you like, you better be well, willing to cough up three pounds of gold for it. To, to put that in our terms, if you wanted a pound of purple dye, you had to put up about $70,000. If you wanted a pound of purple cloth, so already dyed and really not a lot of cloth to do a whole lot with, you better be willing to cough up about $25,000. Purple became such a, so associated with wealth that it ended up becoming the color of the Roman Empire. To the point that if you were of too low status to wear purple, and you were caught wearing purple, they could execute you. We have records of people who were too low status wearing purple, and they were killed for it. So if you're wearing purple today, don't go to Rome. Uh, but what Jesus is doing is he's setting up one extreme. He is habitually dressed in purple. This guy's wardrobe alone in our money would be six to seven figures just in his clothing. This guy is absurdly wealthy. He's character number one. And then we meet character number two, Lazarus, a poor man. And as wealthy as the rich man is, that's as poor as Lazarus is. He's described as a poor man. This word poor uh, also means cower or crouch. It was the posture of those who were reduced to begging. And it was a word that was reserved for describing people who were reduced to begging. 
And we see that with him. He is laid at the gate. That is where beggars went. If you've driven through cities, you tend to see a lot more of those who are begging because that's where the people are. It's the same idea here. You get laid at the gate because that's where people walk through. And if you're reduced to begging, you need to be around people. He is laid at the rich man's gate in the hope that the rich man will give him something or one of his friends or his associates will give him something. So he's in the common place for beggars. He's covered in sores, which are licked by wild dogs. And he longs for the crumbs off the rich man's table. You can't get wealthier than the rich man and you can't get poorer than Lazarus. And that's, the po- that's what we're getting at with the story. That's why Jesus sets these characters up this way. They are the extremes in the story. Extraordinary wealth and utter destitution. Now, the audience is Jewish. And it's, this parable is addressed to Pharisees because the Pharisees openly scoffed at Jesus' teaching in verse 13. So Jesus addresses this to them. The tax collectors and sinners are there. The disciples are there. But he is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would have certain understandings about wealth. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 24, 35 uh, is Eleazar, one of Abraham's servants, speaking about Abraham. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, that being Abraham, so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. In speaking of Isaac, just two chapters later in Genesis 26, now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. The understanding of the Pharisees at the time was that Abraham and Isaac were righteous. Because they were righteous, they were blessed by the Lord. We read it in those verses. And that blessing of the Lord took form in immense wealth. So you're righteous, the the Lord blesses you, you are blessed with immense wealth. If we reverse engineer that then, if you are extraordinarily wealthy, what do you think that means? This is the part where you answer. That you're blessed. Why would you be blessed? Because you're righteous. This was the understanding the Pharisees had about wealth. This is why they pursued wealth so heavily. Because if you showed yourself as extremely wealthy, it meant, much like the patriarchs, that you were righteous. That you were blessed by God. This is their understanding of wealth. This is why they pursue wealth so hard. The rich man, therefore, in the parable, must be righteous because he's been blessed with immense wealth from the Lord. God must like him more than he likes Lazarus. And Lazarus must be wicked or at least not as righteous as the rich man because he's poor and destitute begging on the street and the other guy's living in splendor every single day of his life. This thought process, by the way, is very common today and it's very common among prosperity teachers and preachers who point to themselves and say, look how much wealth I have, therefore I'm better than you. I am wealthier, therefore I am more righteous. God likes me more. And if you give to my ministry, you can be righteous just like me. And they fleece their flock. 
I have, a, I have a lot that I could say about prosperity preachers, but I won't because that will take me off a massive rabbit trail. But if you, if you listen to them, stop. Uh, those people are false teachers and they're going to hell. And their congregations are following them too. Uh, they, they need prayer desperately. But that is the thought process even today. We see someone who's very wealthy and we go, well, they must be doing something right. God likes them. That's the thought process the Pharisees have. Now, in the law, a person with wealth had responsibilities. We won't turn there, but Leviticus 25, 35-37. Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor, like Lazarus, and his, means with, and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God." that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, like Lazarus, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. We are told that Lazarus is laid at the rich man's gate, and what he does his whole life is long for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. The rich man is not righteous. Although he may appear that way, he is not. He is not living in accordance to the law. He's heard it, but he's not done it. To put it another way, if we go back to verse 13, uh, the rich man has chosen his God, and it is wealth. So he cannot serve the Lord. He cannot obey God's word, because he's already chosen his master. And if you choose your master as wealth, you cannot serve God. That is a teaching of Jesus Christ. So this is how they both live. One in ridiculous splendor, one in utter destitution, and then they both die. So much for their wealth. And we get to the afterlife. And this is why, this part here, is why I put such a heavy emphasis on the fact that these are details and a parable is a story with a point. The point is the teaching part. These details, it can be really easy to rabbit trail into and try and find teaching in, but that's not what they're there for. The point is the point, and the point comes at the end. But we're going to read verses 22 to 26. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So Lazarus dies and is carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. 
Uh, Luke 16, 22 is the only occurrence of this phrase in all of Scripture, uh, Abraham's bosom. This phrase was a figure of speech for paradise. Uh, This was a figure of speech for the place where the righteous dead went. In the Old Testament, when you read of some of the important figures, when they talk of the death of that individual, they use phrases like, gathered to his fathers, or went to his fathers. This phraseology got adapted into the language. And the idea became then, if Abraham is the father of the Jews, and he is, and Abraham was righteous. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 12, 6. Then the righteous Jew, when they die, when they go to paradise, are going to be welcomed by their father, Abraham, because he's there. And so you have this idea that when the righteous Jew dies and goes to paradise, he goes to Abraham's bosom. Bosom being your chest, it has the idea of the righteous Jew dies, and when he enters into paradise, who is there to welcome him with a hug? Abraham. Father Abraham. And now you're home with all of your fathers in a place of eternal blessing while you wait for future resurrection. It is, it is a beautiful imagery of a father waiting to hug his child now that the child has come home. That's where Lazarus goes. There's a bit of a shock uh, for The rich man, because in verse 22, it says, and the rich man also died and was buried. And if you're a Pharisee, the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, and he was taken to Abraham's bosom. And the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, in Hades. Hades being the Greek term for hell. And as the rich man tells us, it is a place of torment and agony and flame, which is very much consistent with Jesus' teachings on hell. The rich man is in the waiting room for the wicked before the lake of fire, as in Revelation 20, 14 to 15. The Pharisees would not expect this. This is the opposite expected. Rich man is supposed to go to paradise because the rich man is blessed. And if the rich man is blessed, he is righteous and righteous people go to paradise. But that's not the case. The rich man chose his God. It is wealth. And now he's in Hades. Which is, by the way, a subtle warning against pursuing wealth and making wealth your God because you can see where it ends up. So he's in Hades. The rich man who lived a life of blessing is now in torment. And Lazarus, who lived a life of torment, is now in blessing. Again, you see a reversal, which is common in the book of Luke. So the rich man in torment calls out to Abraham and begs for one merciful moment of relief in this unending agony. But notice who he puts first. Even in Hades, he puts himself first. Lazarus is busy enjoying the blessings of Abraham's bosom. And he says, hey, let Lazarus leave that amazing place of blessing and come down in here to this place of torment so that he can give me relief for one second. You can see who he's putting first, even in death. And Abraham informs him, "Uh, this can't be done. First, Lazarus has no part in bad things anymore. He is only reserved for blessing. The rich man only gets torment now. And second, there's this gigantic chasm. And because of this chasm, 
Anyone who has compassion in paradise can't run down into Hades and try and save people. And anyone in Hades with a right mind can't see paradise and run into paradise. There is a great chasm fix so that Lazarus can't come. Lazarus can't give you the relief that you're looking for. Now, I do want to point out, in this story, we see Abraham in paradise, the rich man in Hades. They are in the two different realms of the dead. They can see each other. They can talk to each other. There is no doctrinal passage in the New Testament that talks about this. So I don't want you to think that when you're in heaven, you can see and talk to the people in torment. Because what you're doing then is you're misinterpreting the the parable. It's a story. These are details. It's important to understand them as the audience would understand them, but it's also important to realize it's a story. This is not Jesus giving doctrine. Doctrine comes at the end with the point. The only evidence that we have of this possibility that you can see into the other realm and talk to those people is from the details of this story, and that is very shaky ground to build doctrine on. The point of the story is, well, what comes next. Here we get to the end, verses 27 to 31, where we get to Moses and the prophets. This finally gets brought up in this parable. Verses 27 to 31. And he said, being the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, So they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man realizes he can't be helped. So he begs Father Abraham to at least go help his brothers. If, he can't, if, he, if Lazarus can't come to me, send him to my brothers. And based on what the rich man says, we get the idea that his five brothers aren't any better than he is. Uh, they need warning. They need repentance. And if they don't get those two things, they're going to Hades. They're going to be joining him. Now, as I was studying this, and this is a little bit of an aside, uh, I wondered why, Jesus, why, why the rich man says five brothers. There are a lot of significant numbers in Scripture, and you can really get into the weeds here. Uh, Three, seven, twelve, those are all very significant numbers in Scripture. Five isn't really a significant number in Scripture. But something that you have to realize is that Jesus is giving this to an audience. There are people standing in front of him. And I think, and I can't prove this, so this isn't doctrine, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on, but I think the reason the rich man has five brothers is because Jesus is talking to a group of five Pharisees. And in every way but biological, the Pharisees are definitely the brothers of the rich man. Turn with me a few chapters back to Luke 11. We're going to read Luke 11, 39 to 42. This is a section of woes upon the Pharisees. Verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay the tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. I think the Pharisees Jesus is addressing would be right at home at the rich man's table. And by the way, that's why the rich man is described the way he is. He is supposed to be a type for the Pharisees whom Jesus is addressing. Now, the rich man believes his brothers will repent if they see the resurrected Lazarus. To which Abraham replies, no, they won't. Uh, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, by the way, is another figure of speech that was uh, used for the Old Testament or what the Jews would now refer to as the Tanakh. And common Jewish experience, so that you can understand where the Jewish audience would be in their understanding, uh, every Sabbath day, so every Saturday, you and your whole community of Jews would gather in the tabernacle. And there you would hear preaching. The leader of the tabernacle would come, he would open the scroll, he would have a significant passage to speak on, he would read it, he would teach on it, he would sit down, and then other men in the synagogue could get up to teach. Usually their teaching was a little bit shorter. Uh, We see Jesus participate in this as well very early on in his ministry, where he takes the scroll of Isaiah, he reads like two and a half verses, he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing, and then he sits down. That is Jesus partaking in this uh, practice in the synagogue of the men being allowed to teach after the leader of the synagogue has taught. Chances are the Pharisees Jesus is addressing have taught in synagogue because they were supposed to be teachers of the law. So any Jew, real or imaginary, to the audience would have heard the law and the prophets. But it is this word here that is very important. It's also translated, at least in the New American Standard, as listen in verse 31. Hear means to listen, understand, pay attention describes the act of hearing or listening to a person with emphasis on the accurate understanding of that which is spoken. And if I asked any of you in here what the difference between hearing and listening was, you could give me examples. Because every wife, every husband, every parent, every teacher, every coach knows the difference between hearing and listening. I can hear you. I can hear noise coming from your mouth, and it can go in one ear and out the other, and I can go... Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Just like we tend to do when we're not paying attention, we're not listening. We're hearing because our ears work, but we're not paying attention. The word that Abraham uses in the parable and Jesus uses in the parable is beyond just registering that noise is being made. It is understanding. So when Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them understand them. Not just hear it, but listen. Try to get the accurate understanding. And that accurate understanding will lead to something, as he tells us in verse 31. Repentance. Jesus gives us a pretty good illustration in another parable, in Luke 6, if you'll turn there with me, of this idea of hearing. Luke 6, 46 to 48. This is another parable that you're very common with, I I guarantee it. This is one of the more popular of Jesus' parables. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, same word, and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. Verse 49. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, or the one who has, un, or has heard and has not done anything on that understanding, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. There is hearing, there is understanding. Hearing, uh-huh, yep, yep, uh-huh, yep, nothing changes. Yep, sounds good. Wow, okay, yeah, wow, that's crazy. Hearing, understanding leads to action. And this is really the point. Because Abraham is saying, if they understand Moses and the prophets, they will repent. And the rich man is pretty sure they won't. He even argues with Abraham. He says, no, Abraham, they need someone to resurrect and warn them. They need a miracle to come to repentance. God needs to show them a sign and then they will repent. And Abraham's final response is the whole point of the parable. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There are those who claim that if God just proves himself to me, then I'll believe. Or when I see it, I'll believe it. When it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation. And maybe you have friends or family members or coworkers who have said those very exact words to you. The Pharisees are very much in that group. Matthew 12, 38, we won't flip there. But then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is what the Jews sought, a sign. But what Abraham and what Jesus is getting at in the teaching is that if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, if they will not believe the word of God, there is not a miracle that will save them, that will lead them to repentance. It is the word of God or it is nothing. So when someone says, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it or when God proves himself to me, then I'll believe they're lying, by the way. In fact, these Pharisees prove it. I have, I have hidden the lead quite a bit here, but there is something very unique about this parable that is not the case in any other parable Jesus gives in any of the gospel. Does anybody know what it is? The students who go to my Bible class should know what it is. But does anybody else know what it is? What is unique about this parable as opposed to every other parable Jesus teaches? Names. There is no other parable in the Gospels that has a named character outside of this one. If you think of the prodigal son, the three main characters are a man with two sons, the older brother, the younger brother. If you think of the sower with the seed, there is the sower. If you think of the man who built his house on the rock, there's the guy that built his house on the rock and the guy that built his house on the dirt. This is the only parable with a named character and the name is Lazarus. Does anybody know what Lazarus means? It's not a very common baby name. Uh, when my wife and I were looking up baby names, Lazarus was not on the table. Uh, that was not an option we were looking at. But does anyone know what it means? It comes from the name Eleazar and Eleazar means God is help or God my helper. 
which is why we believe Jesus named him that, because it's kind of a hint as to where his faith lied. He chose God, the rich man chose wealth, and they ended up where they ended up. The rich man claims that if Lazarus was to resurrect and warn his brothers, who would be the Pharisees, they would believe. This actually happens because a man named Lazarus does resurrect. He does come back from the dead. And he does warn people about the afterlife. And he does tell people about Jesus Christ. And would you like to know what the Pharisees plan to do? They and their gaggle of friends plan to do to Lazarus. Turn with me to John 12, verses 9 to 11. And you will see this verse 31 of chapter 16 literally fulfilled. That there is no miracle that could convince them. John 12, 9 to 11. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, being Jesus, was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing Jesus. Someone who does not believe the scriptures will not be persuaded by anything else. They saw Lazarus resurrect from the dead and they wanted to kill him for it. When Jesus Christ self-resurrects from the dead, proving himself to be the Messiah, proving himself to be the Son of God, they antagonize his followers. They imprison his followers. In some cases, they murder his followers. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, nothing else will persuade them. If they will not believe the word of God, nothing else will persuade them to repent. Thus, all the more reason to use scripture in evangelism. I think of the Word of Life group on OAE. Practicing for OAE, and you do practice for it a little bit, uh, you have to get ready for your message and you have to memorize certain verses because you are expected when you give the message on the street corner or when you have the conversation with the stranger in the park to know the verses, to know where they are in the Bible, and to use those verses in evangelism. Turn with me to Romans 10, 14. And this is why Word of Life places such a heavy emphasis on the Word of God when it comes to evangelism and why we should place such a heavy emphasis on the Word of God when it comes to evangelism. This is the passage we read as a congregation this morning. Verse 14 of Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. So faith comes from seeing a miracle. So faith comes from God showing me a sign. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ or the good news of Jesus Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Turn with me to our last passage. And you can all breathe your sigh of relief now. Uh, the last passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. So you're just going one book over, first chapter, Verses 22 to 24. Verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, as we've already seen, and Greeks search for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. To the unbelieving, it is a stumbling block or at worst, the dumbest thing they've ever heard. But to the called, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. To the called, it is the message of salvation. That Jesus Christ is the Savior that God has sent to save them from their sins. And that by believing on him, they can be saved from their sins and have a right relationship with God. Faith comes from hearing. Not just registering words. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. But understanding and then acting on it. All the more reason to memorize scripture. Here are some very common passages. Probably many of you have these memorized. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, which is the, the best gospel message presentation verse in the Bible, in my opinion. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. John three sixteen. your turn. we go. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord can use all kinds of means to draw a person to himself, a chance encounter, a family member, a co-worker, a friend, but the same central point that every single person in here who is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ has in their testimony is that they heard the word, they understood the word, and they acted on it because they repented of their sins and they believed on Jesus Christ and they were saved. And that message comes from the word of God. In fact, that message is found in the Old Testament because in Luke 24, Jesus explains himself from the Old Testament to the two people walking on the road to Emmaus. God has many means to bring a person to himself, but it is only through hearing the word and understanding the word and believing it that someone can be saved. So if you have a family member or a friend or a coworker who is stubborn as a mule and it feels like you're talking to a wall, I would highly encourage you to memorize more scripture and to use it in your day-to-day language. Because that is where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the good news of Jesus Christ. By the word of Christ. May this parable only strengthen our resolve to love the word. To memorize the word and get it in our hearts. To meditate on the word. To put the word in our language. In our day to day speak. So that when we are met with one who is called, it is not a stumbling block. It is not foolishness, but it is the power and wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. And that person can come to faith. That person can come to repentance through hearing the word of God. May we cherish this book. May we memorize this book. And may we use this book in all of our evangelistic activities, whether it's on a street corner with a big easel and paint, or whether it's across a coffee table with a lifelong friend.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the good news of Jesus Christ in it. I thank you that you have given it to us in a way we can understand in a written form that we can trust. And that through it, people come to salvation. I thank you that within this is the saving power of Jesus Christ. That the good news of Jesus Christ is in here and we can freely give it to all. May it be on our hearts, may it be on our lips as we go from here in whatever conversations we have. So that when we meet one who is called, when we meet one who will hear and understand and repent, they can hear the word. They can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They can be saved and you can use us in that way. May you encourage us as we talk with friends, coworkers, family members who for years have resisted your call. May we not give up, but may we double down, seeking to love your word, memorize your word, and use your word so that at every instance where we interact with this person, the gospel is pouring out of us, that they may hear and they may believe and they may be saved. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.